Welcome to Stop and Talk, a podcast about connection and building a more vibrant region together through creativity, health, and community. This is your host, Grant Oliphant, the CEO of the Conrad Prebus Foundation. Thanks for joining us. Today we have John Powell, director of the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley on the program. The Othering and Belonging Institute is at the University of California, Berkeley, and is a research institute that brings together scholars, community advocates, communicators, and policymakers to identify and eliminate the barriers to an inclusive, just, and sustainable society and to create transformative change toward a more equitable world. John is an internationally recognized expert in the areas of civil rights, civil liberties, structural racism, housing, poverty, and democracy. He is also one of the most thoughtful people I have met, and I love spending time with him. I think you will, too. All right. John Powell, I'm so grateful to you for being here. It's, it's good to see you and be with you. We've had the opportunity to talk at several points in my career, and I've always enjoyed every one of our conversations. I'm going to ask you a ridiculous question right now, which is, which is um, basically asking you to sum up your life's philosophy in a in a couple of minutes. But I think it's important for right. us to ground this conversation in how you have come to think about this notion of belonging and targeted universalism in the context of the type of community work that we're privileged to do in San Diego? Well, that's a great question, Grant. And part of the way I think about it, and I know part of this is real and part of it's made up and it's hard to sometimes distinguish the two, mm-hmm. I think that belonging is the natural, that, that arc that Dr. King talks about, justice, arc, the um, bending toward justice, mm-hmm. the arc in the universe. Not naturally, we have to do the work. It's not mechanical and there's, those who are trying to bend it in the opposite direction. I think if you go back for most of modern history, it, we've been on this long march, I would say, to our belonging. Mm. And I've actually done that. I've gone back a couple thousand years uh, in reading. And you see early expressions and fights. You know, go 300 years back, and the whole world was organized around hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Most people were not valued. Most people weren't grant, granted dignity. And so those expressions were big, even though they were never fully realized. And so in the United States, the Declaration of Independence talked about equality, men, uh, imperfect, Jefferson being part of that, but uh, but also some real serious abolitionists being part of it. So you see the arc of history of really pushing more and more toward dign- giving people, recognizing people with dignity, and I would say belonging. Mm. Uh, but we haven't been explicit in what you know, I sort of stumbled on the explicit need to say that every human being, every human life deserves dignity and belonging without exception. And without exception makes it radical because everyone's willing to say, oh, yeah, my group, my family, me, but not them. Right. Um, right. And what we say uh, is that, no, everyone, everyone. And we realize that's a long stretch, especially now in the country when there's so much going on in the opposite direction. But we think it's all the more reason that it's important to say it and then do it. 
It it can be. Um, I love that as a starting point, and thank you for indulging me in that, in oh, that no, no. question. But I, you know, I think about what people are experiencing right now in the in the public conversation about belonging and equity and concepts of how we accommodate each other and various groups in our society. And and some would say right now that they're questioning the idea that the arc of the universe bends towards mm-hmm. justice and that that idea may have been of a different era or a different time. What gives you faith about that and the philosophy of belonging that you have worked so hard to espouse? Well, I think for those who question the appropriateness of that, I think what, in some ways, what the world is experiencing now is a backlash Mm. with deep othering. And backlashes happen. You know, we had, a, I think, a wonderful first, wonderful prime minister in New Zealand, first woman. Mm. There's now a serious backlash against women in New Zealand. Mm. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't acknowledge respect and treat women with great dignity? No. It just means that some people will see that as problematic. Uh, we saw, uh, we see that in almost every area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's easy in the midst of the backlash to say, oh no, you know, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's reason to be pessimistic. Except, again, it's not mechanical. It's not, it didn't work. It's what do we do? Well, how do we bend that arc? What does San Diego do? Um, and so once we embrace the notion of it, uh, then we have to embrace the practice of it. And it's not going to be easy. And I would say, what's the alternative? Right. Who's, who's, who among us are willing to stand up and say, Grant, you don't count. Right. Women don't count. Black people don't count. Asians don't count. Whites don't count. Uh, when you say it, again, explicitly, it sounds absurd. And so I think we have to put that, you know, as they say, call the question, do we really believe? And it's in so many traditions. You know, the, the, the radical expression of Christianity was the opening up uh, the deep religious faiths to everyone. Mm-hmm. A radical idea 2,000 years ago is still radical. And whether you do it through Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or Judaism, the idea that everyone has a spark of the divine. Everyone matters. And I'm not hopeful. I say uh, <laughs> I don't call myself a optimist, but mm-hmm. I don't call myself a pessimist. Mm-hmm. I call myself a possibilist. Yeah. You know, and what we do matter. And sometimes I think, well, we're going in the wrong direction fast and we're losing ground. Uh, but then you turn the corner and there's something really beautiful and wonderful happening at the same time. So... Uh, Again, I think it's a call, not just to clarity, but also to action. You know, it, what you just said made me think of something that um, the feminist writer Rebecca Solnit has spoken about quite a bit, which is that, especially of late in the context of climate change and racial equity work, that hope is a commitment. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's not necessarily optimism, but it is a, a practice that we have to come back to over and over again. And it sounds like that's what you do. Yes, I think so. I mean, I have children, right? And I mean, and whether you have children or not, but I mean, there's always that question when your children 
are talking to you and you're, you know, in, in the latter part of your life and they mm. say, uh, Dad, Grandpa, what were you doing when mm. the earth was burning? Uh, what were you doing when people were marching? And I think most of us want to be able to say, I was doing my part and, right. uh, and, and now you have to do yours. So when I when I look at my own life, you asked a question earlier. I I have a narrative that you know I come from a large family. Uh, it, it wasn't large when I was growing up. But when I left, everyone started telling me it was large. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> got it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm six of nine. Wow. Um, <laughs> and our family was always extended, so there's about twenty of us always hanging wow. out. Wow. Uh, and it was just natural, right? Yeah. But the issue of belonging is not just an idea. It's something that everyone experiences. Yeah. And I remind people that every one of us came into the world physically, emotionally, and spiritually attached to another human being. Yeah. And we may have cut the umbilical cord, but we never can really cut or should cut the spiritual and emotional cord. And so, you know, just if you're around a baby, you know, and watch a baby with his or her or their mother, right? It's like you don't have to... They don't even have words, but they know the concept. They know the feeling or the absence of it. Um, and so part of it is, is just acknowledging our deep, profound connection with each other and a deep, profound connection with the earth itself. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on the negative side and the backlash, but mm -hmm. I, I think we have to explore it a bit. Right. You know, right around the time that you came to San Diego and we presented you to the community in, the, in, a, in a special program that we hosted, um, really to, to help the community understand a way that we were thinking about our work, which was through the lens of belonging, which mm -hmm. you had heavily influenced. There was an article in the New York Times about how belonging was the new way of talking about these very complex issues mm -hmm. that in a, in a way that people could be more receptive to or hear better than maybe they could through the lens of DEI or words like equity. And you know, words become quickly loaded sure. in our society. So within, I think, two weeks of that article, <laughs> um, you started seeing... Uh, a lot of energy coming from critics now targeting the concept of belonging mm -hmm. as just the latest iteration of woke, and and of course we're we're stuck in this really broken conversation in our right. country right now where words like woke or or anti woke get bandied about by people who probably have no idea mm -hmm. what they mean. But the the it 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 was clear that the notion of belonging was getting caught up in that same energy, um, not through any fault of its own, but mm -hmm. because of the, the, the fire of the, and concerns of the critics. And there has been a lot of debate in the months since in, our, in the broader culture about what is the right way to move these issues forward? How do we productively have these conversations? Uh, how do we move past the, the broken dialogue of the extremes mm -hmm. where you're either with me or against me on the left or the right. How, how has this been for you as really the father of belonging mm -hmm. uh, to, to um, see your philosophy caught up in that? Or do you not feel it's caught up in that? No, I think, I think you're right. And actually, I just had a 
meeting, a conversation with some of my senior staff, and I was saying, recounting, talking to some people who are pretty prominent, and someone mentioned belonging, and they're like, oh, yeah, belonging. And it wasn't a complete eye roll, but it was like, you know, that's what you're saying. Yeah. That's just the latest whatever, and everybody says belonging now. And if people are saying to say belonging is not the same as to do the practice, I completely agree. Mm. We could say that about love. Mm. Like people, I love you. What does that mean? Uh, love is one of those really heavy words, and it's only really gathers is is heaviness in terms of our practice. And so, what I think about, I and I said, you know, we have to sort of think about well, there will be a blowback, but we have to be clear on what it is we're trying to do, and what we're trying to do is not something that John Powell or Other Women Belong Institute or even that. You know, San Diego's, it's really, I think, a global call. It's a global, and the, the, the blowback in a way started before. I mean, mm. if you think of the rise of authoritarian dictators, that's been on the rise for now 20, 30 years. Yes, globally, uh, globally and here. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and in a sense, what they're saying, whether you talk about Putin or Adoran, or, they're saying, this part of the world belongs to us. Mm. There was recently an article in the paper saying there, there's really talk in Russia about rebuilding the Russian Empire, reasserting Catherine the Great, reclaiming Russia for Russians. And implicit in that is that Russia, non-white people can never be Russian. Mm-hmm. So I think the real danger, there's the blowback. I think it had to be clear. But the real danger is we get caught up in their language, mm-hmm. which is that we belong, you don't. That's, I think, the that's most... That's the subtext. That's right. the subtext, and I think that's much more serious. So you perhaps people are saying, this is a Christian country. Mm-hmm. If you want to be part of the country, you've got to be Christian. That's a problem. It's not a Christian country. It's not a Muslim country. When Gandhi was being challenged in India, some people said, why are you so concerned about Muslims? Mm-hmm. You know, you're Hindu. And he said, I am Hindu, and I'm Muslims, and I'm Christian, mm-hmm. and I'm Buddhist. He refused to sort of step into or accept that binary. He really was reaching for something much deeper than that. And he made some progress. He didn't succeed and it's still going on. I think we have to be worried about the blowback from two perspectives. One, people coming at you really hard and sometimes even violently. But two, whatever we describe as our own flank, you know, people saying, you know, they're coming at us, so we have to go at them. Right. They're attacking us and saying we don't belong, so I'm going to push back and say they don't belong. And so we end up being playing the same music uh, of my group belongs and yours don't. Uh, and that's why we insist on saying belong without othering. And to, to the extent that people want to have a critical look at it, I say great. Mm-hmm. You know, you shouldn't walk into something, you know, with your eyes shut. We're not trying to stifle uh, approach. And if someone has a better idea, let's hear it. Yeah. If someone has a better practice, let's hear it. You know, so I don't think belonging is an orthodoxy. There's not just one way of defining it any more than there's one way of defining love. Um, but I think it's important. And I think it's one of those things we aspire to that we'll probably never achieve. But if we aspire to it right, it will organize our world in a very different way. 
you know, this idea that you um, stressed in there, and thank you for that very thoughtful answer. Uh, one of the one of the points you stressed is that um, when we when we define belonging as only a group, <laughs> you know, that 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 is um, toxic and mm-hmm. corrosive to society, and that that's part of what we're seeing around the world right now. Right. I think some very thoughtful people have been wrestling with how to have this conversation without having it descend into constant finger pointing around groups and identities. And um, I, you know, I know uh, somebody like Yasha Monk, who has argued in his new book, *The Identity Trap*, that mm-hmm. we're we're we have we have become too focused on identity as the tool by which we define ourselves mm-hmm. is that a fair criticism and how do you think about the role of identity in the context of belonging you know it's an interesting question i know monk and i you know i respect his work i like i think it's easy to overcorrect mm-hmm. and i would suggest that that statement is an overcorrecting statement and so and also, it's, it sort of buys into the notion that we are not affected by the world. Mm. We can rise above the world. Mm. Uh, and so, um, you know, I'm not defined by just being uh, an African-American man. Mm. But I'm certainly affected by being an African-American man. Right. And so, the, the, um, it makes me think of James Baldwin. Next year is the 100th anniversary. If he was still alive, and there was a period in his life when he was invited to join this writers' club guild that was very prestigious, and uh, and he wanted to to uh, to join. He took his craft and his art very seriously. So when they offered him to join, he was delighted. But they said, you know, you don't have to remind us that you're gay. You know, mm. come come without. That trapping. come without that, and you yeah. know some of your friends are kind of those hulums, you know we don't really want them at this club right and he didn't he didn't accept the offer he stayed and said he went to Europe and he wrote a book called the Price of the Ticket mm. and he was saying people who were extending him an apparent offer was basically saying mutilate yourself. the price of joining is to mutilate yourself and so um I think we all have multiple identities. I think Monk is right in the sense that sometimes we make identity, identity a caricature, mm-hmm. and so we can't move. Um, but I think the solution is not to say, therefore, no identity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and a marital sin, who's a Nobel economist from India, he made the observation that when people are attacked along a certain identity characteristic, they are likely then to hold on to that identity hard. But the solution isn't to say, stop holding on. The solution is to stop attacking them for that identity. Uh, So if you attack people for being trans, but then you say, why are you so attached to that identity? If you attract people for having, you know, a a Spanish accent, accent, then say, why are you holding on? In a sense, we're we're being dishonest. And so, uh, and what we say in belonging, which is really important, and people say, why should I join that thing anyway? Yeah. It's your thing. And that's a, to me, that's a profound question. And so what we say is that you don't join somebody else's thing if you in, in belonging when done well. You co-create. Mm. 
you are co-creating the very thing you're joining. Because if when you're invi- invited to join on someone else's terms, there's a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Eastern Europeans. You can become an American, but first you have to, the melting pot, the melting was all in one direction. Right. You have to change your name, change your food, change the way you dress, right. look like us, yeah. be like us, and then, then, then maybe we'll accept you. So that's the danger. I think that we can hold on to things too tightly and too narrowly. I think Monk got that right. But I think the solution isn't to say let it all go, especially in the context when people are being deeply attacked for some aspect of their day. I I think this is such a key point, and I I just want to thank you for making it, that we— that that people who who want to be critical of the identity politics of the day— need also to look at themselves yeah. in terms or we need to look at ourselves in terms of how do we carry that and how do we help create it by attacking people for whatever that identity is. Um, powerful, powerful point. I So I want to set the backlash aside for a moment. <laughs> We've given a lot of airtime to, sure, the, to sure. the backlash and and I but I, I thank you because I think it's very helpful to 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 understand all of that. Uh, now, as as we turn back to San Diego and we think about how this community, which sits at this amazing place of convergence between Mexico and the United States, between uh, the the lands of the United States and the tribal lands in San Diego, which are extraordinary, um, all of the nationalities uh, that that uh, meet here. How can we be thinking about belonging and translating this concept into a community concept context? Well, I think that's a great and important question, and uh, both for, for San Diego, but also mm-hmm. for the foundation. Part of it's being deliberate on it, and and you know, someone says, "So, okay, this is incredibly important, difficult, wonderful journey to go on. Where do we start?" It's where you are. Mm-hmm. Just start from where you are. You don't have to, you know, put down. You step in, and so you can say, I would say, be somewhat deliberate, uh, inviting people in who are interested in being part of the journey, who are interested in being ambassadors. Look at some things that you might do that are both symbolic and quote unquote substantive. Some people think symbolism is unimportant. I think it's actually quite important. Mm. If the if the region city in the region is saying you want to be a belonging region, which I hope you are, and mm. maybe you already have decided that, um, then say it. Canada has defined itself as a belonging nation. Mm. Uh, there are literally programs that follow from that. They're, one of the things they do, they started with immigrants and they, I think expanded to somewhat. They get people a, a pass to ride public transportation to go to the museums, especially the historical museums of Canada. It's like, this is your country, get to know it. Mm. And then they pull people back together. And I went to one of the ceremonies and you know, it wasn't a dry eye in the place. And listening tours. Uh, and the thing that's interesting about creating a space of belonging is sometimes when people get interested in it, they think, I'm going to create belonging for my group. And that's an important step, but that's only partial step mm. because it can't just be belonging for your group. Your group, certainly, but not just your group. So there may be things where you bring people together, uh, have a discussion. Churches here in California have been having belonging circles and over a thousand churches have already participated. You're doing stuff at the county. So part of it is to take that question seriously 
and engage yourselves and others, and, and certainly we would be willing to help in any way we could, um, to learn from how other places have done it. I'm going to Berlin uh, later this month. Uh, there'll be 30 different nations uh, represented, 500 people who are grappling with this question of how do you make Europe really, and this is mainly Western Europe, but how do you make it really a place of belonging? Mm. And Europe did a pretty amazing thing that sometimes we forget because we sometimes focus on the negative. Every five minutes, there was a new war in Europe. Mm-hmm. The French and the Germans felt like, you know, it was in their blood that they had to kill each other. And so everybody was concerned about, okay, the next world war starting in Europe. And instead what they did is they went on a, a journey of trying to create a new larger we. Mm. They called it European Union. Now, today, it's almost, what, 500 million people. And it wasn't just an idea. It was an idea. But you go to Germany, what's the dollar? What's, what is their currency? The it's euro. Yeah. The euro, yeah. which didn't exist in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And if you're, saying, if you're saying a country is willing to take on as this unit of money something that they share with them, that's significant. Mm-hmm. If you want to go to school in France, you can go to school in France uh, as an Italian, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. traveling throughout. So it's done an amazing thing. And right now it's unthinkable that Germany and France would fight each other. And they didn't do it in such a way of saying you have to give up your German identity or citizenship or your French. They said we're adding to it. It's becoming more complex. You can be German and you can be European. And European has to mean something. Now, some people felt like the, the, the opening up to that large we stopped when it got to people Refugees from, coming refugees, from Africa. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so part of the thing we have to pay attention to is where do we, where do we stop? Mm-hmm. That tells us where a lot of work needs to be done, at the place that we stop. Mm. Powerful concept. You mentioned earlier starting where people are, meeting people where they are. Um, and we'll get to where they stop <laughs> in, a, in a moment, but I'm just thinking about that. And, um, and in terms of starting where people are, one of, the, one of the things that I think is so compelling about your methodology and your philosophy is that uh, you, you really do espouse talking to people in ways that include them. No matter who they are, you are promoting goals that include everybody. So, you know, a, a better functioning government serves everyone. Yeah. Better policies on health care serve everyone. Uh, it's that old idea of the curb cut effect. Yeah. You know, the curb cuts in sidewalks, which were originally put in for those who, who needed help getting around, um, suddenly became useful to everyone in society, including all of us as we age. Right, right. And I've noticed um, <laughs> that this is a true statement. I used to think of it theoretically, but you know now I see the see the truth of it. So you really you really do talk about the importance of of targeted universalism. There's a universal goal that everybody can understand. But sometimes the way we have to get there is by investing more deeply in, programs and efforts that help 
raise up one group more than another because they're further down Mm -hmm. and need the extra assistance. That's basically the notion. One of the challenges to your your approach that you sometimes hear um, is that yeah, but we've got to at some point get past this this comfortable way of talking about it and acknowledge we have to fix systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do you engage people in that conversation about about how we have to actually fix systems? Well, two things. Uh, if you go on our website, the Other, Othering and Belong website, uh, we make it clear that when we talk about belonging, we're not just talking about interpersonal. We are talking about structures. I was had someone visiting at my house recently, and she made the observation that uh, she normally checks her bag. And I said, why? You know, that adds time and the risk of you losing your luggage. And she said, well, I'm getting older. It's a woman uh, in her 60s, and I can't really lift these bags over my head. Mm. And they're heavy and... Um, and so sometimes somebody might offer to help, but oftentimes they don't. And so I just suck it up and leave a little early and to the airport and leave a little later from the airport. And then I said, you know, this was something we talk about a lot because this is a structure. Mm-hmm. The uh, How we do luggage on the airport is unevenly distributed across the population. It has a greater negative impact on women than on men. I don't think anyone intended that necessarily, mm-hmm. but it's a reality. And, and I said, part of the things that we noticed that when structural problems exist, inter- individual interventions are always clunky. They don't work that well. So you're paying for that uh, with your time, with your lost luggage. That system wasn't designed with you in mind. And every system, but every system is like that. And sometimes we don't notice because we're part of the group it was designed for. So most men are not going to notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Just like when we go to an escalator, most of us going up and down the escalator don't notice the fact that the person in a wheelchair can't use the escalator. Uh, and so part of it, what we say is to be hard on structures, mm. critical on structures, and soft on people. And that too often what we do is we're hard on people and we're soft on structures. And structures, when you look at structures, you're not talking about intent. You're not looking for, you know, the sexes or the races. Maybe some of those structures were put in mind with nefarious intent behind them, but many of them were not. And that's not the point. The point is not simply how do we remove barriers, how do we create structures co-create structures that serve everyone. So you're right that we do have to pay attention to structures. We do have to pay attention to systems. And, and what we sometimes when we sort of look at these things, we quickly get into either a binary story. Mm-hmm. You're saying my country is bad. You're saying I'm bad. You're saying, my, you know, and, and I say we need a more complicated story. Mm. We need a story that, you know, every country, my guess is, but every country, has a complicated history. Not all angels and not all devils. Right. Can we actually talk about both? I had a teacher years ago who used to say, "If you, I was a good student, and he said... <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> and he said, you know, I have to give a better test. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you get, you get too many 100s. I said, what's wrong with 100? He said, when you get 100 on a test, it doesn't show you where you need to grow. Hmm. 
it's when you fall short mm-hmm. that you can look at, oh, this is a high growth area. I need mm-hmm. to focus on this area. So when we see things in our society, in our history, in our country that are not what we hope they would be, especially when we have aspirations uh, that are relatively clear, it's not necessarily saying, see, it's a hypocritical country, it's a bad country, it's saying this is an area where we can grow. Right. And in, in many cases, we have grown. Uh, so uh, how do we make structures that reflect the fact that we want everybody to belong? You know, we've, we've started doing that in terms of disabilities, but how do we extend that mm-hmm. beyond that? When children from Asia and Latin America were first coming to, the, to California, the question was, could they be instructed in something other than English? Mm. And some people said, no. Everybody else is speaking English. Well, everybody else grew up in the country speaking English. It was their first language. That case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the court said, of course right. they can. And why, why was that such a hard thing? So part of the thing that people grapple with is there, there's a fear of the other. There's a fear that if I acknowledge somebody else, am I going to lose part of myself? And we make it, have to make it clear that when we talk about a world where everybody belongs, we're talking about a future mm-hmm. where everybody belongs. So when the Proud Boys are worrying that they're going to be replaced by Jews, well, I, mean, I don't know where they got that from, but they, they said they're worried about being pra- replaced by Jews. In some ways, we have to say, no, we're, we're not talking about replacing you by, with Jews. We're talking about Jews having a place. We're talking about Jews belonging, but not that you don't belong. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitating because I'm thinking about whether that ideology belongs as a, but if we're talking about people um, and white versus versus whatever other category, what you're saying is everybody belongs. Everybody belongs, and, and the, and the, and so much of the dialogue today is based on this assumption that it's you versus me. That's exactly right. We have a zero-sum mentality. Yeah. I mean, the court talks about that as well. Now, it's, it's complicated because the reality is, as the world change, we're going to change. So I might be afraid that as you know, more people come in who don't look like me or who don't worship God the same way I do, that that's going to affect me. The reality is that it's going to affect me. Yeah. But not of in course, any, it's in, the nature exactly, of reality. Exactly. Yeah. Not in a singular way. Right. I'm going to continue to have influence as well. Right. Um, you know, I used to go to London, you know, in the 1970s, and it was like, you know, you sort of eat as much as you can before you go because the food was so bland. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now the food I remember is, <laughs> that. Yeah. Now the food is wonderful. London yeah. is like you know, an incredibly diverse place. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's changed. And it will continue to change. And, and that's scary to some people. Right. That's baked into our demographics. One of the figures I like to throw out is that when we talk about the future, we're talking about Africa. Yes. Yeah. No question long-term economically. That's right. Not even long-term. 2030. Yeah. 2030, 41, 42% of the people on the planet 20 years and younger will be in Africa. Mm. That's 42%. 42% in six years. So it's like, you know, and the United States and Europe will be increasingly old. And China. And China, right. So, I mean, I don't know what that means, but it means something, Mm -hmm. right? So, yes, uh, people are trying to... And Italy, for example, is a wonderful example of that. It's like, no more immigrants, but we need workers. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is... 
to me, the the almost I mean comedic if it weren't tragic part of this is the that we we fail to connect the dots between right. how we need to keep maintaining our own vibrancy right. and the role of other people in helping us do that. That's right. You know? and, and, and therefore the change that comes with it. And it's not just Italy's here. I mean, we had, like a year or so ago, we had vegetables, food, laying on the ground rotten because we couldn't get workers in the United States to pick it. And that's largely coming from Latin America. And people can debate about it, but for the most part, most of Americans didn't want to go into rural America picking food. Yeah. Yeah. There weren't the people, you know, I'm not saying people should stay in those jobs, but we are connected in so many, many ways. And how do we make that? Such a brilliant observation. Yeah. And it's fundamentally true. You mentioned the Supreme Court a moment ago. And I, you know, I've been thinking a lot, as has everyone in philanthropy, about recent Supreme Court decision uh, about the role of affirmative action in college admissions. And really calling into question how we can fix systems in a way that seem to privilege some over others if we don't name them. Right, right. And, and that's the central challenge right. that now I think a lot of, we're seeing a lot of um, corporations struggle with, we're seeing a lot of foundations struggle with, talking about how to remedy the society's past failings and ills that live on in right. the policies and laws that we still have without acknowledging that that's the underlying reason. Right. And are you, do you think belonging is a helpful framework in terms of that? I think it could be. I'm, I'm a little, I'm not a, ten, I tend not to be a cynical person, but mm. I, I do feel like the court is not always honest. Mm. In fact, sometimes I think it's just the opposite. Um, and I, and, and I do think it's, you know, we have to be careful not to get stuck in the past, but we can't mm. actually have a future unless we acknowledge our past. Mm. And I think the, the court's reading of the history of the, what's called the Civil War Amendments is almost completely wrong. And the logic is actually almost completely wrong. Let's give you a 90-second version of it. So I'm teaching this semester on teaching the affirmative action case that just was decided. And Justice Thomas is, very proud to say, you know, it's like, you know, why are we even talking about race? Race is an, a social construct. It's not real. He basically says, he and Justice Powell basically said that race is arbitrary. It's random. So why should we distribute resources based on race? Mm. In fact, that's that's stereotype. That's, and that seems to make sense. But here, this is a thought experiment. hundred students in class, they're random. I walk in, I give some of the students a yellow sticker, some of them a brown sticker. These are random. The distribution of stickers are random. Then it turns out the students with the brown stickers are not doing well. And the students with the yellow stickers are doing well. How do I explain that? And what I say is that if it's random, we can't explain it by the biology or the behavior of the students. Mm -hmm. Because we said it's random. So there must be something associated with how I'm distributing it, how I'm, with the red, with, excuse me, with the yellow and brown, that actually creates a different outcome for students. Mm -hmm. That's what structural inequality is. We actually bake in the difference and then we ignore it. Right? So 
and I've been thinking about writing this up because, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't say groups don't exist. They're just completely random. And yet this group consistently, durably underperform. Right. And how do you make sense of that? And what the when, when conservatives on the court basically say is that black kids, black and Latino kids, are not cutting it. They're not, either they don't care enough, there's a culture of poverty, there's this, there's that. But I say, if you say the group doesn't exist, it's completely, that argument is not available to you. Right, right, right. And in fact, is offensive. It is offensive. <laughs> on, all, on all kinds of it levels. It is offensive. And this is where, you know, this is where we get into the systems question and looking at the schools that are available to them. And the, uh, yeah, so, and this is, this seems to be where our society gets lost in the debate. Right. And I, so let's bring this back to San Diego. You know, I think um, some folks hearing this conversation worry about how belonging plays out for them and what what I hear you underscoring, which is what I've heard from you before, is the conversation we're having is about how to create a society that is genuinely for everyone, where genuinely everyone gets to belong. Right. And it's not about excluding anybody. It's not about favoring one group over another. It's ultimately about creating this society that really was the idea of America at its core, at its best, that we have all, I think, you know, to go back to Dr. King's bending the arc toward justice, that's the, that's, that's the goal, is mm-hmm. to get to what the ideal of this country was supposed to be. Um, a community, do you think a community can be helpful in helping our nation achieve that? I think a community can be extremely helpful and should be. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, I talk about these ideas and maybe put my own spin on them, but I like to remind people the idea of targeted universalism. Yeah. Um, so I'm one of the people associated with those terms. But the concept comes from Aristotle. Our, much of the Western concept of equality actually was distributed not just within uh, Europe, but all over the world, Native people, African people, were grappling with the concept of equality for a long time. So it's much more uh, diffuse how, mm-hmm. how, we, how we got it. Uh, but certainly, Greece was important. The Greeks were important. And Aristotle, which influenced the French, who influenced Jefferson, he said, justice and fairness requires you treat similar and when people are similarly situated, you treat them the same when they're similarly situated. Mm. And he called that arithmetic equality. Mm-hmm. He then went on to say, but justice and fairness requires that when people are situated differently, you treat them differently. He called that geometric mm. equality. We grabbed onto the first one, saying treat everybody the same, but that's not what he said. He said only when they're situated the same. Right. And he said... You actually, a healthy society needs both of those concepts to actually thrive. To be able to distinguish when you have arithmetic and when you have geometric. Mm-hmm. And, that's all, and that is really what targeted universalism is. It's saying some people are situated differently than others. We don't pay attention to how people are situated. Right. And yet we all do. We talked about children. If, if one child is sick and needs antibiotics and the other child is not, I don't say I'm going to give all the children the same medicine, 
because they're situated differently. And so we need to dig down and sort of look at how groups of people, children, adults, neighborhoods, races, Mm -hmm. are situated in our society. And how we, and so targeting universalism says, following Aristotle, is that when we're situated differently, we should be treated differently for the purpose of making sure human dignity is evenly distributed across society. I, I, I think it's, it's just so compelling to me to think about this concept going back to ancient Greece and, um, and, and to the, the great thinkers of the past. I mean, these concepts are really as old as time that we have understood, as long as we have understood justice, we have understood the idea that it's not evenly distributed, which requires us to make sure that we take steps to remedy that. Um, I had forgotten the term uh, about geometric <laughs> equality, which is, I think, really helpful to, yeah. uh, you know, to understand that there's a different way of looking at, at how you try and get at an equal society, which is the goal. You know, coming out of the, um, I guess I will, I, we're going to have to wrap up this conversation. I hate that because I could do, <laughs> we could go, for, we could go a long time. Uh, but I, you know, I'm thinking about for the work of this vibrant, amazing community where there are so many exciting organizations and exciting opportunities to help San Diego realize its potential by becoming a belonging region and by really leaning into its opportunity to be a place where everyone truly belongs. Um, I think that is the, the opportunity that exists right. here. Uh, and I'm thinking about it in the context of a society that went through a really hard period of acknowledging past injustice following the murder of George Floyd, then uh, has been recently going through a period of almost retrenching from that mm-hmm. because of of the the blowback we were talking about earlier. And at some point, if I if I believe what to be if if what I believe to be true about this community and about America is ultimately correct, we will find our way back to the the middle that allows us to make progress on these issues. Um, do you think belonging is the way to get there? I think belonging is very central to that effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, the, the two things we also sometimes associate with belonging is targeted universalism, which we discussed earlier, but also bridging. Mm. How do you connect to someone who appears to be different than you? And you mentioned Monk earlier. And what, when Monk sort of problematized identity politics, I've been a little bit saying it's not identity politics that's the issue. It's breaking that's the issue. It's is my is my using my story and my situation to deny you your story and your situation. Uh, that's called breaking. When it's like, you know, uh, and we do that some. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about ourselves in such a way that puts the other person down. But we could also bridge, and we have really wonderful examples uh, throughout history uh, and 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 today. So, and I think it's really important to sort of acknowledge our past. But it's critically important to acknowledge our future. Mm. What is our future? What is our aspiration? How do you get people to sort of say, okay, we're all trying to get there. Some of us are walking. Some of us have bicycles. Some of us have cars. Some of us take the train. But we all need to get there. So how do we facilitate that? And I think having 
helping San Diegan, I don't know what the right phrase is. Yeah. Uh, uh, San Diegans. Yeah. Think about a future together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's certain things, and have that discussion. And, and have people tell their different stories uh, without necessarily putting down each other. I think that's critical for San Diego, for the country, and frankly, for the world. And so one of our goals is to um, make belonging without othering a global norm in the next 15 years. And if you think about human rights, in before the 1940s, no one knew, even knew what it was. Mm-hmm. And when people first started talking about it, 1947, 1948, Eleanor Roosevelt and, and W.B. Du Bois and then the U.N., it was just symbolic. Mm. had no real teeth to it. Mm-hmm. Now there are all kinds of instruments coming from the UN organized around the basic concept of everybody has human rights. Right. Um, mm. But someone had to say it and, and, and put some teeth to it. And, uh, and I think I can't think of any better place than San Diego. And, and thank you for that. And thank you for the lofty, and I... And I love that goal, the, the, the goal of, of a future uh, with belonging without othering, I think, um, in 15 years, you said, yeah. which is, I think um, it's good to set a time frame on this. I'm going to finish by asking you, in an era of social media, the very purpose of which sometimes seems to be <laughs> to drive othering <laughs> yeah, yeah. because it just it makes us scream at each other and and drives a wedge between groups and worsens the behavior that we were been talking the negative behavior we've been talking about and makes everybody feel attacked so that they deepen in their in their identity um, divisions is that possible it's it's more than possible you know, so Grant, think about this. Who was the the leader of the, the Arab world when Muhammad was alive? I I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. <laughs> Most people do not. Yeah. And if I say who was the the the, the head of Rome, and a few more people know when Jesus was killed. Most people don't yeah. know that answer either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here we have these powerful empires by these powerful people with not they didn't have the internet and they didn't have mass media, but they have control of society. And two thousand years later we can't even call their name. Right. But we can call Muhammad's name, we can call Jesus' name. So these ideas actually matter. Right. Um but we have to call them out. And unfortunately some people who call them out will pay a price for it. You know, which happened to Gandhi, which happened mm. to, to King, uh which happened to Ella Baker. But the price is even higher. If you don't call it out, you're right. So, right. what happens? You know, the, the end of the end of the story, right? Of the Good Samaritan. When they ask the Good Samaritan, "Why did you stop and help those people?" And people don't. Most people don't realize the story. The people were considered the enemy. It wasn't just someone needing help. Right. The person was from a group that we despise. It was an othered group. It was an othered group. Yeah. And of course, why would you risk stopping on the road to help someone from the other group? Right. Weren't you afraid of what would happen to you? If you did that, and the response was, I was more afraid of what would happen to me if I didn't. Mm. I was more afraid of what would happen to me if I didn't stop and help. So I think, you know, it, it may be challenging hard, but I'm more afraid, not of the blowback, not of the challenge, not of social media, I'm more afraid of if we don't do this, what will happen not just to the world, but also to me, to you, to us. 
I can't improve on that parable. <laughs> I, I think there is, I just want to say that's a parable for our times and and as powerful now, maybe even more so than, um, than when it was originally told. So thank you for that. Professor me. John Powell, it's, uh, it's a privilege. Every time I talk to you, I feel um, a little better about the world <laughs> and a little smarter too. So thank you. Well, thank you for making the world a little better place. All right, multiple takeaways from this one, but let me tease out a few that I I think really stood out, at least for me. Uh, One is this idea of belonging is about creating belonging for everyone, and that really is the radical notion here. The important thing is not what we see so often, people talking about belonging for my group. It's about belonging for every one of us and how we can lean into making that be our goal. Second, he talked about how we can't expect others to accommodate us to find their way into belonging, that we have to co-create that reality. And I love the the notion he quoted from James Baldwin that we can't or we have to consider for others as well as ourselves the price of the ticket of entry. And if we are expecting, if we are setting a price that asks someone else to sacrifice who we are, we have to sit with how we would feel about that and whether we would be willing to pay that price. John uh, spoke about the importance of, of moving past attacking each other for our identity and that what happens with people when when they're attacked is they tend to become more and more defensive about those lines of division. And so in a society that is at least purports to be very concerned about identity politics and identity wars, maybe one way to solve that is just to stop attacking people based on how they define themselves and making room for that. John's willingness to do that really underscored a, a fourth point for me, which is his his description of himself as a possibilist, this idea that he's not necessarily an optimist, but he remains hopeful and he thinks about the ways in which the world is still possible to change. And I actually love that idea from Rebecca Solnit that I mentioned, that hope is a commitment and a practice. It's something we lean into every day by believing that change is still possible, even if we don't know what the outcome might be. Another point that John brought up that I think was really important was his metaphor around the luggage. Uh, And, you know, this is really important when we think about changing systems, because this conversation so often becomes really loaded really fast. But John's core point is, Some systems have been designed, like luggage racks in airplanes, to privilege a certain group of folks. And that group of folks are strong, able-bodied, tall people. And that if we were thinking about how to design that differently, we might also think about ways to accommodate luggage that don't require uh, you to be tall or or strong in order to put away your luggage. And it reminded me of what Savasti Haracharan said in our first podcast episode about seatbelts and how we, you know, we we didn't immediately understand why it was that so many 
women were being injured by seatbelts in car crashes until somebody had the light bulb moment of realizing we weren't designing them for women. And really, it's a design question instead of what we so often get hung up in uh, in debates about let's design systems that work fairly for everyone. John also spoke at one point about what that really means is embracing a new and larger we. I loved that phrase. And he also asked us to remember, finally, that where we stop in this journey towards belonging and ending othering is most often where we need to do the hard work and lean in and push just a little harder. He quoted Martin Luther King uh, a number of times about the idea of the arc of the universe bending towards justice, and this is where the bending happens in my mind. When we go that extra mile, ask ourselves what we are not willing to do and how we can exert just that little bit more influence to create the larger we, to be the possibilists that the country deserves. And I think it is a worthy call for all of us as we think about how to embrace a society of belonging for everyone where no one needs to be othered. Thanks for listening. Join us next time, and please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. Stop and Talk is a project of the Conrad Prebis Foundation. It is produced by Crystal Page and Adam Greenfield. It is engineered by Adam Greenfield and recorded in the Voice of San Diego Studios. Thanks again.